Adult Safeguarding in Sport. You're listening to the Public Law Podcast, brought to you by the members of 39 Essex Chambers. I'm Susan Rodway KC and Nicola Greeny KC joins me and we hope we're going to enlighten you about this very complex topic. Safeguarding in sport, of course, is itself more than just one podcast. It's probably a university degree. But when we're looking at the adult safeguarding, there are certain distinctions and and we want to take you through what those are and propose a way forward because obviously We're more familiar with safeguarding in relation to children, especially with coaches and predominantly sexual abuse cases. So what we need to think about here is the type of adults to whom safeguarding applies and the type of behaviours, because it's not simply sexual abuse, it's many other things. So Nicola's just going to take us through some of the introductory issues and then we're going to look at what's been happening. Yes, thanks, Susan. Well, I think as is familiar to us who work in the sports field, most of the safeguarding systems have been designed with child participants in mind. But in recent years, there's been a much greater focus on the safeguarding of adults in sport. And indeed, there's been a big push for disabled adults to become more engaged in sport. And we've seen many initiatives and policies, indeed, that have arisen out of that. For example, the FA has its own policy about disabled participants in sport and safeguarding issues arising from that. I think one of the key features that we have to bear in mind at the outset in terms of safeguarding adults is that, and how that distinguishes safeguarding respective children is that adults have autonomy to make their own decisions. So unless you're talking about adults who lack mental capacity for some sort of mental health or other learning disability or otherwise, interventions and safeguarding interventions with adults will occur with their consent, unless, of course, there's some sort of criminal behaviour such that the police and criminal justice agencies are involved. And another, I think, interesting feature of safeguarding systems for adults in sport is that there is a move towards a recognition that safeguarding of adults is not just concerned with those who are defined in the safeguarding world as adults at risk, when we're normally talking there about adults with mental or physical disabilities and often with health or community care needs, such that they're receiving services from social services or health agencies. What there is an acknowledgement is that adults who do not have those sorts of disabilities or risk profile are nevertheless at risk in sport. And that's for a whole range of reasons, but all types of risk, you know, sexual abuse as well, financial abuse, overtraining, emotional, psychological abuse and hazing, for example. And that's something that I think you and I, Nicola, have been very concerned about because The IOC has produced a document which we'll talk about later in this podcast called Safeguarding Athletes from Harassment and Abuse in Sport. And it's a slightly mixed bag because the introduction makes you believe that really it's a much wider audience that is the subject of the safeguarding procedures that they set out. They talk about violence against women. They talk about the coach-athlete relationship where that is obviously ripe for all sorts of different coercive controlling or other abuses. But then they do again come back at the end to this conundrum that we're going to explore, which is not just do you have to be a vulnerable adult in the context of the definition of the CARE Act, etc., in order for these policies to bite, but also 
Are there other policies that you're steered towards, such as the disciplinary procedures and so on and so forth? And I think both Nicola and I feel that within the sporting arena, there needs to be a greater umbrella of safeguarding that does not force you as the victim down a route where you have to be A, the person who proves the case, and B, often has to prove a course of conduct over a period of time. So I think that's quite interesting. And there's been a few recent reports and reviews, haven't there, in in relation to sport, Nicola, which you've looked into? Yes. I mean, one, albeit it's focused on children, is the Anne White report that was published last year, where she was reporting, obviously, on the abusive practices in gymnastics and the culture and sort of detrimental culture that existed certainly at that time. And I know there's been some progress in gymnastics and the problems that gave rise to for children in terms of overtraining, in terms of a fear of speaking out, needing to please a coach, having concerns about, I suppose, future success in the sport, if any concerns were raised. We know gymnastics is a ripe arena, isn't it? And we remember from the United States and the Larry Nassar cases where the top athletes, if they made any sort of whisper of a complaint, were simply removed from competition. And that's exactly the thing we're talking about. And one of the things Anne White was talking about in the report was obviously the isolation that many of the children felt how their parents were kept at arm's length. And obviously you have a different dynamic with adults, but I think we can draw comparisons and parallels from that in terms of adults in elite sport can end up being quite isolated. They have very close relationships with their coach. They might spend a lot of time away from home and from those close supportive relationships they have with family and friends, such that they can end up in a situation where they feel they are under a lot of pressure. They're not able to assert themselves in the way they might like to and can end up in these situations where there's a real imbalance of power and they're subject to abuse. So I think that report is an interesting one and reminds us of of the problems. And certainly in respect of women, I thought there was another aspect that Anne White didn't end up making any recommendations about, but was the fact that in relation to women in gymnastics, they're still entering the senior competition at age 16, whereas men enter it at 18. And she was very concerned about the adverse effect of that on the training of young women in gymnastics, the pressures it puts on them at their bodies, physically, emotionally, in terms of training. But because it's part of a sort of, it's obviously a world sport, she came to the view that it wasn't, as it were, right for her to make a recommendation about it. But she's raised it very much as a concern. And that's something, isn't it, Susan, that we've both seen in the IOC report you were referring to, where they've picked up about concerns for certain groups such as women in sport and how they can be particularly vulnerable and subject to these abusive behaviours. Yes. And not just in gymnastics, as you say, I mean, looking across the IOC is probably one of the most predominant bodies that looks at worldwide sporting behaviour in the context of the Olympic sports. So let's consider then our little headings of what we're going to try and help our audience with today. Yeah, so I think broadly, we're going to start by looking at the particular environment in sport that gives rise to safeguarding issues in respect of adults and explore that. We were then going to 
linking into that, look at the types of abuse that can occur with some examples in this sort of adult sporting context, and then go on to look at what is the framework in terms of national governing bodies for safeguarding adults in sport. And that links in, Susan, to the point you were making about the procedures by and large being focused at the moment on adults at risk as they are defined in those policies, albeit that there's an increasing understanding that there's a broader cohort of adults who are at risk. And then I think just briefly really reflect on how adults are protected in other fora, such as adult community care, for example, and how safeguarding is dealt with there. And then I think then come on to look at what conclusions we might be able to draw from that vast landscape. So let's start. What is the particular environment in sport that gives rise to safeguarding issues in respect of adults? Yes, well, I think there's a number of features. I mean, The one that jumps out initially, I think, is this dynamic between the coach and the athlete and the relationship being really rather a unique and often complex one. So they've got a shared passion for the sport, a commitment, joint goals, and they spend an awful lot of time together. So as a result, you have very high levels of trust, closeness. There's a lot of influence. Most of that's unavoidable just because of the nature of the training programme and the need, the joint need to pursue improvement and performance. But what that leads to is a high risk of blurring the lines between a professional relationship and a personal relationship. And obviously a personal relationship can develop even once the athlete and the coach start seeing one another outside of training, if there's any sort of socialising, because there's a close relationship they might develop, that the coach might be offering advice irrespective other aspects of the athlete's life. So it's a bit like the strictly come dancing curse, isn't it? Where you see those people in that exactly. hot house arena where they're spending so much time and effort pursuing a particular goal. It is quite interesting in the IOC, there's an intro from Sir Clive Woodward, or at least a quote from him. So in relation to this, in becoming coaches, we accept a duty of care to help athletes become the very best they can be. That means empowering and protecting them in every sense of the word. So quite a neat synthesis there. Yeah, absolutely. And another feature I think that we see a lot in sport is that adults in sport will have competed as children in sport. Indeed, as we know, in elite sports, individuals will get into competition very early and will often have developed a relationship with a coach as a child and people change coaches but you do have a dynamic where these relationships and the power imbalance as it were is set very early in the athlete's life as a child and it becomes very difficult to as it were rebalance that relationship once the child becomes an adult. In other areas of the law we call that grooming don't we? Yes certainly if it leads to any kind of intimate relationship. Absolutely. And that can make it quite difficult as well for the individual, even once they become an adult, to speak out and challenge abusive behaviours. Or even to recognise them. Well, that's another point. They've become so used to it. I mean, it's a form of um, conditioning. And certainly when you're, again, in this isolated world and training with others who are subject to similar regimes, it becomes very difficult as well to recognise when things are out of kilter and not right. 
And I think another aspect, another strand to it is obviously the risks that arise from this very high performance culture and the pressure on the individual to succeed in competitions, which really is a ripe environment for having problems with overtraining or training when injured, the pressure to succeed and not to take time off sick and that sort of thing. And protecting the athletes from themselves in many ways. Yeah, absolutely. And there's this organisation, I know we've both been looking, Susan, at their website, the Ancraft Trust, who are a charity that have been set up really to focus on and minimise abuse amongst children and, and adults in sport. And and I think they've got some very useful guidance about safeguarding adults in an elite sport where they identify these risk factors and also what can be done to minimise those risks. And I really would recommend reading this document to anyone interested in this area because it really does identify, I mean, they have sort of various headings. They talk about environmental risks. One of them, we always already mentioned that, the fact that an athlete often spends a lot of time away from home, often in a small bubble, just two features, how there can be organisational risks in sport. So if within a particular sport, there's either a lack of policies or a lack of implementation of the policies, a lack of training and education. And I think that's something which seems to me we've picked up from a number of these reviews that have been carried out, both the White Review, also, in fact, the Clive Sheldon report that he produced into historic abuse in football was the key importance of training and knowledge of everybody involved, not just the athletes, everyone who who is acting as a coach, everyone within the sporting organisation, so as to be aware of the risks. But going back to this, the other aspects they're talking about are, obviously, there can be personal features of the athlete that create vulnerability, life challenges outside sport. They also talk about image body weight expectations. And again, that was something that emerged very strongly from the White Report about this culture of gymnasts being weighed a lot of the time. And obviously that's not unique in sport. Obviously having the best body you can have to achieve and succeed in the sport is incredibly important. And also then they focus on this idea of trusted people and these very close relationships with individuals that can create abusive situations. And then just in summary, the factors that they say can reduce risk, they talk about, as we've said, good education and training. Also, I think what's absolutely important, this positive open culture in the sport, an environment where athletes feel able to report concerns, they know where to report concerns, there's a clear pathway. And also there's respect for the athlete voice. Because I think that's what we've seen in a lot of these situations where things have gone wrong. Athletes are not listened to. They think they won't be listened to. They're worried about speaking up. And plainly, that's crucial, having that open culture in terms of addressing these problems. And also, of course, the key thing, safe recruitment. And that's obviously what all of these bodies need to focus on, making sure that individuals working this area have undergone proper checks, depending on what role they're going to perform. Absolutely. And that comes through loud and clear. If we're now thinking about the types of abuse that we're talking about, obviously, the first thing that comes to mind because it is so predominant is the sexual abuse. But we mustn't forget that in within the sporting arena, there are many other issues. There's financial abuse, for example, as you've pointed, overworking or overtraining, 
we've already touched upon bullying and harassment, hazing, which is the sort of initiation ceremonies and so on and so forth. And there's a vast area. But it's quite interesting when you look at how that is being dealt with by various sporting bodies. So we've looked, you and I, and have found that most of the sporting organisations and regulatory bodies in England do have safeguarding policies. Again, we come back to the fact that when it deals with adults, they are strictly defined as coming within those arenas that Nicola's going to expand upon just shortly within the CARE Act. So you have to look a little bit wider. Um, For example, the British Horse Racing Authority, the BHA, has a safeguarding policy and it reports its cases. When you look at those, there are only two safeguarding reports that have been published. One, we can identify that there's a name of the person who was found to be at risk was Mr. Singh. Obviously, the victim is anonymized, but we only know that he was attracted to the possibility of instigating violent sex against a young woman who he considered unlikely to raise the alarm, and he sought to undermine truthful and legitimate complaint by her by seeking to persuade adults that she was not telling the truth, etc. It's not entirely clear from that, but one has to suppose that person A, the victim, was a vulnerable adult, but it doesn't actually define it. But then if you look at some one of the more well-known cases that's come out recently, the Robbie Dunn case, which was effectively bullying, but really I think wider could be regarded as a safeguarding issue. This is Bryony Frost, the female jockey. And the breaches were all in relation to Rule J19, which is conduct prejudicial to horse racing, But the content of the allegations is much wider. It included, for example, him exposing himself to Bryony Frost when he came out of the physiotherapy room and and in a sort of jocular way. It included issues of this sort of culture within the weighing room. But quite worryingly, it also included, quite apart from threats and bullying that were quite obvious, allegations of race riding that was dangerous very difficult to prove. But once you actually get in a sport to an arena where there is physical risk, it seems to me that someone in Bryony Frost's position shouldn't have had to leap through those very difficult hoops. And indeed, we remember how she was really sent to Coventry, wasn't she, by her fellow jockeys and excluded. And good on her. She's now back at very high levels and succeeding. But She made out her allegations, but really that is quite a good example of where a broader policy, because obviously she's an adult who is not within the care act, not within at risk, but she was perhaps part of a vulnerable cohort if we think that women in sport can be identified in that way. And I think some sort of a safeguarding policy that was able to catch that type of behaviour would have been incredibly helpful in that instance. But there is a framework and you're going to tell us what you think the framework or approach currently is to safeguarding adults in sport, Nicola. Yes, I've been having a look at a number of policies in place for various national governing bodies in sport. And they do have safeguarding procedures for adults at risk, which is how they're usually defined in these policies. Those policies are very similar to those in place for safeguarding children. Indeed, in some cases, it's dealt with within the same policy or the same procedure. And these procedures are designed to promote the welfare of adults at risk when they're engaging in sport. And when it comes to the formal 
regulations, as they're usually called in these bodies, they're about taking action to impose restrictions on individuals who are seen to present a risk to adults at risk in sport, which obviously can be by way of suspension of those individuals who present a risk or other the imposition of other conditions in order to minimise or prevent the risk that they present. And the way those policies normally work, and it will be familiar to those who have dealt with the children's policies, is that There's power to impose orders and restrictions on individuals, so be it coaches or referees or otherwise, working in the sport. If there's been a criminal conviction, if the individual's been put onto the disclosure and barring list, but also on the basis of a risk assessment. So if the individual's found to have actually caused harm to an adult at risk or is found to either present an actual or potential risk. And I think that's what's interesting in this area, that it's very much a protective area. It has in mind these vulnerable groups, such that individuals who are found to be a potential risk to these groups can be subject to sanctions. And usually what happens is that the sporting body presents a risk assessment often carried out by someone external, which will be the basis of its application that a particular individual should be subject to restrictive orders. But as we know, obviously, by comparison, if matters go through a disciplinary route, and we're talking about disciplinary proceedings for misconduct, as happened in the Barani Frost case, you're talking about allegations being made, the need to prove particular facts underpinning that allegation, and also then a threshold, is it actually misconduct? However, that's defined in the particular policy. So these safeguarding procedures, they are broader, they are more protective. And the adults that fall within them by and large are, as we've said, adults at risk. And most of the policies follow a definition that is either the same as or very similar to the CARE Act. So we're talking about adults at risk who have needs. So they've been identified as having needs for care and support They're experiencing abuse or neglect or the risk of abuse or neglect, and they're unable to protect themselves from abuse or neglect. These policies often also cover people who'd be regarded as a vulnerable adult for the Safeguarding of Vulnerable Adults Act as well. But again, we're talking about individuals with vulnerabilities, some sort of disability, whether it's mental or physical, that brings them within that group and means that they have needs. So, What these policies aren't on their face covering are, or certainly these formal safeguarding procedures are, adults generally who are not at risk by something intrinsic, some condition from which they suffer, but actually from external behaviours only that put them in a position of vulnerability. Yeah, absolutely. So it's the behaviours. And in sport, that's exactly the point, isn't it? Because of what you've just been saying, that there seems to be a need to consider safeguarding against a particular type of behaviour as opposed to having to focus on and reach the threshold of being the person who has to reach a threshold to be safeguarded. (laughs) So I think sport throws up a much wider horizon for this. It does. And one of the interesting things I came across actually is sort of acknowledging that the use of these definitions, you know, certainly from English Community Care Act legislation, is that in another jurisdiction, even in Northern Ireland, 
they've actually got a broader definition in there. They've got an Adult Safeguarding Prevention and Protection in Partnership Act 2015, for which, for example, UK Athletics, which is obviously a body that operates across various parts of the UK, and for the purpose of their Northern Ireland jurisdiction, they adopt that definition, which is much broader than the one in the Care Act in the UK. They're talking about adults at risk of harm through abuse by reason of personal characteristics and or life circumstances. They're talking about isolation, socioeconomic factors, environmental living conditions. So I thought that was really rather enlightened. It's interesting. It's not quite on point, but it's beginning to show that that is a more fluid definition. Yeah, it's a fluid definition, exactly. But yes, but in terms of going back to sport and in terms of the policies, what we are aware of, and again, the Ancraft Trust has been involved with Sport England in doing a lot of work in this area, is to have a wider concept of adults at risk in sport, not just those with care and support needs or mental or physical disability, but focusing on those who are at risk from these situations, from overtraining, from abusive relationships between them and their coach. And in doing that, they've actually put together this safeguarding adults in sport framework, which is very helpful. It's an online assessment tool. And indeed, it has now been put on a formal footing because from April last year, it's become a requirement for all national governing bodies, active partnership and national special partners funded by Sport England and UK Sport in England to complete the framework as part of their funding agreement. And what it's doing is adopting a much broader focus on adult safeguarding. It's not narrowing it down to adults with a particular disability or who are at risk, but really setting criteria so that all adults involved in sport are participating or involved in a culture, part of a culture that is creates a safer sporting environment which protects them from harm. And anyone who's listening to this can see this framework policy, can't they? They can find it on the website of the Anne Craft Trust. Absolutely. And you'll see we won't run through it because we don't have time, but it's got various themes and the things that you would expect having a adult safeguarding policy which has a broader focus and also having methods for implementing that policy, having procedures in place. But again, when it comes to what processes are appropriate, they're talking about often as well disciplinary action being taken against staff or volunteers who've abused or neglected adults. So again, it's recognising not everything is envisaged as being dealt with under these safeguarding procedures or safeguarding regulations, but using really a patchwork of tool or sort of procedures to protect adults when they are subject to abuse. And they have a number of themes where they deal about, again, what you were saying earlier, setting out a framework, but also training, which is incredibly important. Uh, Recruitment, we say it time and again, but that is where it all starts, isn't it? To your checks and balances and communication. So having clear codes of conduct that everyone is aware of. So it's common sense in many ways, but it is incredibly important, as you say, in this hothouse (laughs) that is often where sport 
arises. And we're not just talking about athletes, of course, we have to remind everyone we're talking about people in the administrative process, people behind the scenes, employers, employees, all of those people are subject to this, not just athletes themselves. But I think that's a very helpful website for giving some sort of guidance. But again, we get this conundrum that even where we see that there's a sort of broader scope, like the IOC document that I referred to earlier, again, you think, yes, hallelujah, we're moving into an arena where you don't have to come within the concept of being vulnerable in the sense of the Care Act. You know, you can be a woman who might have vulnerabilities in other ways just by being a woman. And then it goes back into, yeah, but it's disciplinary rather than something that there's no umbrella approach for safeguarding, is there, that really we can define in sport? No, I think that's right. And I mean, obviously, what you can have and is not uncommon is perhaps a relationship that develops between a child and a coach, but then becomes a sexual relationship once the athlete becomes 18. And the safeguarding procedures as they exist currently can address that situation because obviously they can deal with, you know, if that's treated as grooming behaviour, that person can be seen to present a risk to children, even if there hasn't been an actual sexual relationship before the athlete turns 18. So that's a sort of transitional situation where, say, the child safeguarding policies can come into play, even though the adult would not then be an adult at risk as defined under most of these policies. But it's an interesting question as to when we're talking about adults in sport who are not adults at risk as defined, they haven't got a a mental or physical disability, but they do find themselves in these abusive situations. At present, that will be dealt with under the disciplinary code. Correct. And the IOC, it's worth reading that document if you want to go to it, but it has a sort of toolkit for setting out and, and helping. And I think it's showing how all these bodies are aware of this. But we go back to how it's reflecting other safeguarding adult frameworks, as you've just said. So we go back to the safeguarding in, in the CARE Act and so on and so forth, and the local authority issues that we are probably more familiar with, as you say, with more protected parties, more adults who lack mental capacity, isn't it? Yes. I mean, there can certainly be adults within that who lack mental capacity, but you might have adults who have capacity, but are nevertheless have some kind of care needs and that makes them vulnerable to abuse. I mean, it's quite interesting as what we're identifying in sport, I think, is that We've got a patchwork of protections, really, and frameworks that apply. But it's worth reminding ourselves that we have that situation in terms of protecting adults in community care as well, because everybody was very happy when the more was put on a statutory footing with the Care Act, which gives this power of duty on local authorities to carry out assessments in respect of individuals who they believe are at risk of abuse. But when it comes to interventions to address that situation, local authorities are reliant on a panoply of different tools. You know, has there been a criminal offence or what route are they going to go down to address it? And in some senses, the courts, as we know, for adults who have capacity, the High Court in its inherent jurisdiction has intervened in a number of these situations to protect adults who 
are autonomous, have capacity to make their own decisions, but find themselves in these abusive relationships where they're not autonomous, they're not able to make their own decisions. And I think we're talking actually about a similar dynamics that can occur in the sporting world, aren't we? Yeah, because we're talking, I mean, the point about the sport, I come back to this, is that we need to have, I think, a wider definition. There certainly needs to be more joined up thinking about adult safeguarding in sport. The risk assessment approach is incredibly important, but there also needs to be a route by which people are protected, not just from the outside, but can come forward without fear of it having repercussions on their athletic prowess and ability. And I think that's a very big problem at the moment. I agree. I think that what we know from the reports that we've seen into abusive practices is that it's important to have an open culture. And what you need for that are very clear pathways to report concerns that individuals have confidence in and they know that their concerns are going to be listened to and acted upon. And I think it's certainly a starting point that we have now that the concept that sporting bodies are adopting these more overarching policies to look at adult abuse in sport more broadly But what needs to be clear, I think, to individuals when they look at the policies that are available from a particular sporting body is to know exactly what they do as an adult in sport who doesn't have particular care needs, but just finds themselves in one of these situations where there is abuse, where there's an imbalance of power and they need help and they need support to get out of it. Yeah. Clearer pathways. Well, again, clearer communication, greater knowledge and clear pathways. And I like your phrase, the open culture. I think that's incredibly important. But it's a work in progress, isn't it, Nicola? I mean, this is probably very much the infancy. And we hope that we're going to be able to come back and tell you later that there are more joined up thinking, as we call it. And there is more that all sporting bodies are able to do to guide athletes and participants through this maze. Absolutely. Thanks for listening. Find our other podcasts and resources over at 39essex.com.